Let's just bow in prayer, shall we, together? Father, we thank you for the joy of having assurance that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and that due to his intermediary work even today at the Father's right hand, that you hear and heed the very groaning of our own heart, and that you hear our petitions and our supplications. You understand our need because Christ was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so if we've entered, as we have entered into a time of prayer together, we pray that you will answer according to your will. And now as we open your word, we pray that you'll give us direction and guidance and leading as to the way that we should go. We'll give you the praise in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, Mr. Peebles is coming, and if there are any of you here tonight that are visiting with us, uh, he'd like to hand you a little packet of material I think would be of interest to you. So if you're a visitor here tonight, raise your hand, will you? And Mr. Peebles will give you uh, one of these packets. We um, want to give you a warm welcome tonight. We hope that you will enjoy the time that we share together in the study of God's Word. Next week, we will be having our missionary conference, uh, beginning on Saturday night with the potluck and then on into Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And uh, so next week, uh, we'll be gathering in a little different manner and be hearing from some of our missionaries and from Paul Maxwell. And uh, so be much in prayer in these days. If you can, make it to one of the cottage prayer meetings that will be held uh, tonight, or I mean tomorrow night and Friday night. And then make it to the potluck on Saturday. We're going to have a great time, a great missionary conference. And so we hope that you'll participate in that. Also, uh, let me just say that for those of you that do come on Wednesday nights and are unable to come on Sundays, um, if any of you would be interested in having a copy of the book uh, on These Truths We Stand, uh, that is a series of messages on our doctrinal statement here at Valley Church, you're welcome to take a copy tonight. I think there's some out in the entryway, and Mr. Peebles, I'm sure, would be glad to see to it that they're out there for you. And uh, we urge you to uh, take that. It's no cost to you, and uh, yet we believe it can be uh, very valuable as reference or uh, just in your own study in the Word of God. Right now, we're talking in these days about the subject of discipleship, moving into a very practical aspect in our third phase of our study. First phase was the matter of discipleship in the Gospels, as we saw how Christ discipled men. The second phase of that study then uh, went into the area of, of discipleship in the book of Acts from a number of different standpoints, uh, seeing how the disciples responded to a number of different uh, problems, difficulties, and so on. And then we uh, now have come to the third and final phase of this study where really the rubber meets the road. We are talking in these days about the subject of discipleship in this practical framework. The first three messages, the third of which will be tonight, uh, we are talking in an introductory way, just sort of preparing us for that which we hope to do. And then following missionary conference, we will for a period of uh, ten studies be sharing with you ten um, sessions that you can actually have with a person you're discipling, trying to give you some tools that will aid, aid you in discipling others. And we're giving this to you in note form, uh, as we are this entire series, but the difference is that before we gave you notes after the uh, time of study, we are giving you notes now uh, having to do with the study, 
uh, that we'll be talking about tonight. If you've taken a glance at the notes you were given tonight, you know we've got a lot of ground to cover uh, in this last uh, session uh, before we have missionary conference and then move into the, uh, the ten uh, sessions that we will be utilizing. For that reason, again, I remind you that it's our purpose primarily uh, to be brief uh, and sort of uh, capsulize these things, not go into great detail. Uh, we're not exegeting each and every one of these passages but rather we are uh, just simply uh, laying them out to you so that you're able to grasp the truth that's contained therein, and uh, then you can put your own words with it as you share it with others. But this has to do, again, with the uh, sort of introduction, and we're talking tonight about the focus, thrust, and goals of discipling others. We already have talked about the fact that we are to do it, the things that, that, that uh, thou hast learned among many faithful witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others, to teach others, to teach others. As you're in the process of going, make disciples of all nations. We talked, you remember as well, about the fact that Christ concentrated his attention on Peter and James and John and on the twelve, making special individual contacts, and only in a secondary sense did he concentrate effort as far as the masses were concerned. We saw last week that you are the key to success in the matter of discipleship, a number of things that are important as far as your relationship, knowing Christ, growing in Him, being filled with the Holy Spirit, dedicating yourself to God to be used as an instrument in His hands, just simply being available, uh, an available vessel to be used of God, and then, of course, the whole listing of things that are involved in being an example of a believer for uh, in a very real sense, even though Jesus Christ is the ultimate didaskalos, the ultimate teacher, um, nevertheless, the, the believer in Christ becomes a follower of Christ and in that way becomes a prototype or an example of what a Christian ought to be. So Timothy was told, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example in numerous areas there. We talked about that last week. Now tonight, we want to talk, first of all, about the fact that Christ is the focus of our discipleship. I want you to look at 1 John 1, 3. We will turn to this one. Some of the other passages we will not take time to turn to. I'll just give them to you uh, as quickly as we can uh, so that we can touch on as many of these as possible. 1 John 1, 3, we read these words. That which we have seen and heard, which he talked about in verse 1, declare we unto you. This is his message, of course. Uh, the message of First John, the message concerning the reality of Christ as opposed to the Gnostic cult, uh, which was denying the reality of Christ's uh, physical body and so on. And he gives a purpose now, a purpose clause, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with others is not an end in itself. That is, it is, not, it is not the ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And fellowship with one another is a byproduct of the fellowship that we have with Him. Now let's never forget that, and let's realize that even though we enjoy very much one another's fellowship, the focus of our fellowship has to be upon Jesus Christ. It's far more important that you be in agreement with Christ than it is that you be in agreement with others. You find two people, both of which are in agreement with Christ, they will be in agreement with each other. But the focus of our attention should be upon doing what Christ wants us to do. One of the things we face in counseling situations so often are people who come with an idea of what they would like to see accomplished. 
They generally have in mind their own happiness. I want to be happy. And that is not a major goal as far as the Christian is concerned. The major goal is to please Christ. And when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And when an individual learns that pleasing Christ is the highest motivation, then these other things just fall into place. So when we talk to a person that is interested in being a disciple of Christ, it's very, very easy to begin to relate to him on a superficial level. In other words, relating to him with fellowship moving sideways rather than moving vertically to the point of Jesus Christ being the goal. It's very easy, for instance, to find that you have a number of things in common and build your relationship upon those things that you hold in common rather than taking the supreme thing that you hold in common, the fact that you both love the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus of our attention has to be upon Jesus Christ. So just give me give you an example. Two men might meet uh, in order to uh, for one to disciple the other. They might find that they're both interested in sports. And uh, in the process of the hour of uh, time that you have, perhaps uh, over a bowl of soup in a restaurant, you can waste a lot of valuable discipling time by getting bogged down on the subject of athletics. And of course, you can have wonderful fellowship together because it's something you share in common. And that's what fellowship is. The only problem is that it will keep you from the more important area of focusing your fellowship upon the person of Jesus Christ. The best way to avoid this, of course, is for you to spend your quality time deliberately with the idea in mind of sharing spiritual truth. In other words, when you call a fellow for lunch, you, you don't say to him, look, let's get together for lunch today. Uh, we can talk about some things. You call him and you say, listen, uh, I'd like to meet you for lunch. I have a goal of uh, meeting with you ten times. And uh, each of these ten times to give you something additional in the way of spiritual truth to help and enhance your own spiritual growth. Now that kind of a statement puts the whole thing in a proper focus. When you sit down at the table, you can simply say to the fellow, you know, we could make a lot of small talk and those things will come in due time. But today we have a serious purpose. Because the thing I want to talk to you about today is the assurance of salvation. And I want to share with you a passage of Scripture. So while we're eating... I'm going to try to share with you these things. And if you've got hang-ups and problems, feed them back to me. And then with a discipline, in a disciplined manner, avoid small talk. Now, that may seem very cold and calculated because you say, well, don't fellows need, people need to be warmed up? Uh, and uh, don't we have to get a little bit acquainted on, on these superficial levels as well? Of course you do. But keep in mind that those things come in a very natural way. You don't have to force yourself, do you, to talk to the fellows in the office about sports? No, because most of them talk about sports from now, now and then. And obviously you'll have that opportunity to talk about those things. But you see, Satan doesn't mind that. If you build a level merely around sports or around concerts or around anything like that that you might be interested in commonly, or housekeeping, or even the problems you have in uh, mutual with your children, or any of those things, they're, they're rather superficial. And in the process of, of discussing those things, you're going to waste the time that you've set aside to disciple the fellow. Now, when the subject comes up about child discipline and this sort of thing, there's some wonderful things you can teach and still relate that time to spiritual truths. In fact, 
if you have a fellow who really likes to talk about sports and he constantly is spinning off on that, well then relate your presentation to him concerning the assurance of salvation to the athletic world and find scriptures that talk about the, the athletic concept. The Apostle Paul had a great knowledge of athletics. And as a result, he used athletic terminology a great deal of the time. So you can still focus it upon Jesus Christ and upon his word, and yet, at the same time, not waste your time with these other things. There are two major settings, really, where you're going to be involved in discipleship ministry. The first of those settings is the formal setting. That is where you call him, you make an appointment, you have 60 minutes, and in that 60 minutes you want to teach him concerning the assurance of salvation. That is the formal time, and that you want to concentrate almost entirely on the spiritual realm. But then, of course, there also are informal contacts that you'll have with the person, and you can meet for the purpose of going to a ball game or going to a concert or something else. And in those informal times, what you need to do is you need to figure out ways that even in that context you can discuss spiritual things in an informal way. Now, you know, it's not a matter of of uh, finding an individual that you're going to cram this down his throat. We're talking about people who have committed themselves to you discipling them. That's what we're talking about. And, of course, you have to use a different approach with a person who's just plain not interested. But you know what you want to do is when you lead someone to Christ, after you lead him to Christ, then say to him, okay, now you'll probably want to know how this Christian life works. Well, the first thing that you do is you meet with me ten times. <laughs> you know, I mean, don't let him know that that's not what everybody does. Just uh, take it as a matter of course that that's what a, what a new Christian does. And by the time he's gone through ten times, then he probably will have found out not everybody does that. But by that time, you've already got him to a place of maturity in his own spiritual life. So uh, it may sound sneaky, but uh, there's no reason at all why you have to tell him how lazy a lot of Christians are and become. Uh, they, they'll find out that soon enough as it is. But in the informal times, you have tremendous teaching opportunities. Let me say something. The first people you ought to be involved in discipling are your own children. Don't neglect them. Disciple them. And you should have both a formal and informal time with your children as well. And the focus should be on Jesus Christ. And when your child asks you a very obvious question, that obvious question can be turned into a spiritual truth so easily. Some little bit from nature. You know, Dad, why does the sun shine? Okay, what are you going to do about that? You can tell him, if nothing else, the first thing that comes to my mind is the fact it's not always going to shine. Did you know that? Did you know that the Bible says that in heaven there's going to be no need for sunshine because God, Christ is the light of it? So there's no need for moon by night, no need for sun by day. And then you can take that truth and develop it concerning the fact that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The whole concept of light could be taught. Now that's just something that came off the top of my head that you could use with a child. But you see, if you can do that with a child, you can also do it with a brand new Christian, utilizing the opportunities at your disposal. So our goal should constantly be to focus upon Jesus Christ and keep Christ as the very center. Now, you see, it's like spokes in a wheel. As the spokes get closer to the hub, they get closer together. And there's no way that two people who center their conversations in Jesus Christ 
can avoid having fellowship one with another. It's an automatic thing. 1 John 1, 9, or excuse me, 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship one with the other. It's singular, one with the other one. The one it's talking about there is Jesus Christ. But our verse 3 tells us that our fellowship is with Christ, and the byproduct is that we have fellowship together as well. I think if we would, uh, if we would quit worrying so much about how much fellowship we're going to have with other Christians and focus our attention upon how much fellowship we mutually are going to have with Jesus Christ, the, more, the, the result would be that we would experience the byproduct of close and intimate fellowship together. Now, too many people are seeking after that uh, elusive thing uh, that has to do with, with a, a, a interpersonal relationships. And all of the time, the problem is not so much between two brothers as it is between that individual and Christ and the other individual in Christ. And the natural result of getting closer to Christ is we get closer together. I always am a little skeptical of the kind of doctrine that leads people to an exclusivism. In other words, the closer they get to a particular viewpoint of doctrine, the more they break fellowship with other believers. There's a danger in that. So be very careful of it. It's not getting closer to Christ. It's really getting further from him. For the byproduct of closeness to Christ is a closeness to one another. Now, in the process of our discipling, it's very, very important that we develop the whole man. I like to call this a well-rounded square because I heard a message on that a long time ago from Luke 2.52, uh, which uh, really is, is a very, very important area. Here it's describing the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that he increased. Now, the word that he used there is the word prokopto, which was used to blaze a trail. I think you've got it in your notes there, so I won't put it on the board here. But prokopto is a word that meant to blaze a trail. It meant to explore new territory. Literally, to cut forward is what the word means, and thus to progress and to advance. The noun form of this word was used in Philippians 1.25 and also in 1 Timothy 4.15. Both of those places, it is speaking of the advance uh, in the lives of those people. And this, of course, is what we're after uh, when it comes to the matter of discipling another person, we're after them to, to blaze forward the trail. Uh, Philippians 1.25 is an example. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. You're going to be moving ahead in some new dimensions. Paul said, I'm going to come to Philippi, and when I do, we're going to be moving together, exploring some new territory. And that ought to be the goal that we have as we minister to other individuals. First Timothy chapter 4 and uh, verse 15 says this, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Meditate isn't, doesn't mean meditate. It means attend, really. It doesn't mean meditate in the same sense as the Old Testament word. I think we saw that last week. But uh, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting, the word profiting is the noun form, prokopen, which is to blaze a trail, to cut a path, to move ahead, uh, to explore new territory, that thy, uh, thy exploring of new territory, a forward advance, will be known 
to all others. In order to do that, take heed to thyself and to the doctrine, and so on. So it says that Jesus Christ increased. That is, he moved forward in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He moved forward in the area of his soul, wisdom. The soul, the thinking part of the soul, is highly emphasized in Scripture, sometimes called the heart. And it is the soul, the mind, emotions, the will, the conscience, and the self-consciousness of the individual. And Jesus Christ increased in wisdom, which speaks of that which has to do with the soul, at least the reasoning part or the thinking part of his soul. And in stature, having to do with his body. In other words, his body continued to grow and continued to develop for the purpose for which he was called. And in favor with God, that had to do with his spirit. And in favor with men, that had to do with his interpersonal relationships, the social area of his life. And this is the well-rounded square. This is the total man. This is everything there is. The body, the soul, the spirit, and the social areas of our life which come as a result of the combination of these things. And the Lord Jesus Christ was well-rounded. Now you notice a number of things. First of all, the area of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son, uh, the son of David, king of Israel, to know the wisdom and instruction, perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. If anybody is to have wisdom, he has to fear God. Jesus Christ feared God better than anybody else. And so that, of course, has to do with how we're going to develop in that area. The whole book of Proverbs really speaks to that issue of the development of the soul of the individual. And then in James chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth liberally all men, and abradeth not, and it shall be given to him. Then over in the third chapter of James, verse 13 and following, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of the good conversation or manner of life his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your heart, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, that is, of the world, sensual, that is, of the flesh, devilish, that is, of the devil. For where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above. Now this tells us the kind of wisdom that Jesus Christ had. He did not have the wisdom from beneath. He had the wisdom from above. What is that wisdom? How do we describe that wisdom? It is that which is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them or for them that make peace. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it tells us concerning Jesus Christ that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we read that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of full understanding to the acknowledgement, the knowledge, the full knowledge of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now those 
verses and others that you could relate to this have to do with the development of wisdom in particular. And of course, there are a number of things that have to do with the whole area of the soul. The, the mind, the emotions. One of the first things you ought to teach a new believer, incidentally, is the proper use of emotions. God never gave us emotions to feel sorry for ourselves. You never see Christ sorry, feeling sorry for himself. He never said, oh no, woe is me, I gotta, oh my, I got, I'm going to have to die. Oh no. He never felt sorry for himself. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the grave of Lazarus. He sweat, as it were, great drops of tears in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he had the proper use of emotion. What's the proper use of emotion? To be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. To care for others. That's why emotions were given to us. And, of course, sin has distorted that, so now everybody feels sorry for themselves instead of feeling for others and weeping with those that weep and rejoicing with those that rejoice. There are many Scripture verses that relate to the soul. The emotions, the will, a lot about the will of God and the fact that our will runs contrary often to the will of God. A lot about conscience and the danger of, of spoiling the conscience so it's not sensitive to the norms and standards of the Word of God. Then, of course, as well, you have the self-consciousness, which God gave to us so we'd be aware of ourselves, aware of those around us, and aware, most of all, of the presence of Almighty God. That all has to do with the soul. And that's a part of the development of an individual. Then, in, in addition, the stature. Of course, uh, we won't take time to read all these passages, but the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians is a great passage to go to where it talks about, about the, the fact that since God gave us a body, it was not intended for immorality. And our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, bodily exercise profiteth a little, but the main emphasis should be that which has to do with the Spirit, that of the development of our relationship with God. Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God, having to do with his relationship in the Spirit. Again, Christ's life was lived to please God. That was his whole motivation. And again, we quoted Proverbs 16, 7 earlier, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Matthew 3, 17, remember the voice from heaven came down saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John 8, 29, uh, Jesus Christ said this, and he said, he that sent me is with me and the father hath not left me alone for I do always those things that please him. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but as we are allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God growing in our relationship with God by living to please Him. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Paul's concern with these new believers was that they might concentrate attention upon living to please God, growing in favor with God. Remember, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, tells us that Enoch had this testimony, that he pleased God. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, talk about the matter of the sacrifice of praise, and then doing good, and then giving, and then it says, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Over in 1 John chapter 3, we read concerning the fact that if you want your prayers answered and want to have the guarantee of God answering your prayer... Then you have to obey his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. 
He tells us then what his commandment is, that you love one another. The things that are pleasing in his sight go even beyond that and go to special things where we understand what God wants and his very best for us is, and we live according to that. That's what has to do with living in favor with God. We need to be sure that we convey this in trying to develop the whole man. Then finally, the social area. You remember in Romans 14, verses 13 through 18, it talks about the matter of stumbling blocks, the matter of, of, um, of really being a stepping stone instead of a stumbling block, the concept and idea of the weaker brother and all of those things. It says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know that I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ, now notice, is acceptable to God and approved of men. Both areas are important. You live your life, first and foremost, to please God. But inasmuch as you can please God and at the same time help men, you cooperate in that area and not trying to uh, butter them up, but rather simply developing a social relationship, realizing that what I do is seen of men. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And some people take that verse and they say, ah, then that means we shouldn't fool around with the outward appearance. We should just make the heart nice. But what it says in that verse is a statement of fact. Men see the outward appearance. They do. Therefore, the outward appearance is important in our testimony to men. And what we are inside, of course, is vitally important to God. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That was the story of the early apostles. They had favor with all of the people. That is particularly the believers there. Remember in Esther, Esther found favor with king, with the king. And he married her, and as a result, she saved the generation of God's people. Remember that Daniel refused to defile himself with the king's meat, but he had found favor with the eunuchs. And the result was that uh, they worked out a deal whereby he would be able to, to not have to defile himself and yet at the same time pass the test and uh, be able to be, find favor with the king. You remember that Joseph, Joseph uh, had a problem because his brothers were jealous of him. They threw him into a pit. The Ishmaelites took him. They, they sold him to Potiphar. It wasn't long, and he found favor with Potiphar. Potiphar saw that uh, God was with Joseph, and that he blessed everything he did. So he just took everything and put it into Joseph's hand. You remember what happened? Potiphar's wife tried to lure Joseph into immorality. He refused. And when he refused, she lied, and he was thrown into prison. There in prison, guess what? He found favor with the jailer. It wasn't long, and he kept the keys to the prison. They knew they could trust him. He saw that God was with him. And the result was, they had a good relationship with that pagan jailer. 
wasn't long, and God kicked him upstairs. And he became second in command in all of Egypt, simply because the king saw that God was with him. That's all. When a man's, ple- man, man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. See? So you live to please the Lord, but at the same time, there is the development of those social areas and those social uh, ideas. So you have to have the full man in view as you're working with others and trying to win them to Christ. And that's why a lot of times when a person is working with another person and trying to disciple them, they will concentrate some attention, for instance, on the body. Now, you know, we Americans have, have the problem of uh, not taking care of our bodies. And uh, we overeat, and uh, we tend to, to abuse our bodies by lack of exercise, all of those things. And, of course, one of the things you have to do is be an example of a believer. So, if you're going to be really effective for God, before you can talk to that person, this is why this, remember we talked last week about how this person who's the new believer is going to put the screws on us, and we're going to have to be better in the sight sight of men and in the sight of God than we were before simply because of this pressure that comes as we try to help someone else. You just try to tell someone that he ought to lose weight when you have to lose weight. Best thing to do is admit that you've sinned in gluttony, and all the rest of it, and just simply say to, the, say to the person, look, why don't we work on this together and be an encouragement to each other along this line. Let's both of us lose weight, and we'll kind of keep track because our bodies ought to be in good shape. After all, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't want it cluttered up with all kinds of fat cells, do we? And so therefore, we want to have a body that really works and is able to be functional for the glory of God. Remember, That scripture says it is to the glory of God the way we use our bodies. We glorify God in our bodies. And so therefore we have to work on that area. And you see there will be other areas where you find really you you may find that you're spending a lot of time uh, taking in a lot of garbage from the things you're reading. And you may just have to tell the person, you know I have to really confess to you that uh, I've been reading more in the... Uh, the Time Magazine Newsweek type thing than I have been in, in scriptures. And I'm going to have to tell you that I'm, I'm uh, in order to help you, I'm going to have to improve my own area. And so let's help each other in that regard. And let's see if we can't challenge each other to memorize a chapter a month of scripture or something of that nature. You see, challenge each other. And uh, you take part of it. And don't just expect to lay this religion on him and not live up to pure religion and undefiled yourself. Be a well-rounded square yourself and then develop those characteristics in his life. Now in the process of this, it's very, very important that you keep a proper balance in discipling. There are a number of ways that you, a number of things that you have to keep in mind in regard to your relationship with this person. We need to concentrate on four balanced areas of ministry. There has to be, first of all, counseling, which has to do with confrontation and warning. There has to be encouragement, which has to do with comfort and exhortation. There has to be teaching, which has to do more with the idea of systematic teaching, systematic study. And then finally, there has to be the development of fellowship as well, where you share needs and share prayer requests and this sort of thing, and really uh, get to know the person on that personal basis. 
In regard to counseling, you've heard much about the word nothesia, which is to admonish or to warn. It's used numerous places in Scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 10 11, it's used to give us the definition of the purpose of Scripture. Now, in all these, now all these things happened unto us for in samples. That is, all of Scripture was written to give us in samples or examples. And they are written for our admonition. That is the word nathesia. Our admonition, our warning, really, a confrontation whereby we are warned. They are given for our warning upon whom the ends of the world are come. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, in the father-child relationship, it says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up, notice, in the nurture, <coughs> that has to do with the discipline, and the admonition, that has to do with warning of the Lord. That's, again, having to do with this matter of counseling. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, it says that a man that is a heretic, that is one that's departed from the truth, after the first and second admonition, warning, he rejects such a person. Acts chapter 20, verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone day and night with tears. Now Paul there is talking to the Ephesian elders. And he's saying three solid years he was in Ephesus. And during that time, much of his time was spent night and day counseling. That is warning, admonishing these people. Uh, to Really, the idea of, of nathesia is to train by words. It's a matter of bringing to discipline. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians well, let's have Romans 15, 14, first of all. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye, are also full, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able also, or literally you have the power to, dunamis, the word for power, you have the power to admonish one another, counsel one another, that is, warn one another. And then 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. There it is again, the matter of counsel, the matter of admonition. Colossians 1.28, whom we preach, warning every man, speaking of preaching Jesus Christ, warning every man, admonishing every man, nathesia, and teaching every man, didaskalos, that uh, in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature, teleos, in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, didaskalos, and admonishing, warning one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, and also verse 14, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Again, warn you. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Warn them. If they're out of line, out of rank, really, then warn them. Comfort the feeble-minded. That has to do with encouragement. Incidentally, we were talking about the well-rounded square. Okay? Remember? Jesus Christ grew in wisdom. We said that that had to do with the soul. The development of the soul. You know that in this verse, where it says, warn the unruly, 
Comfort the feeble-minded. Do you know what the word is literally? The feeble-minded are the small-souled. Those with an undeveloped soul. God wants to do that. But how do we do that? How do we develop? By encouragement. When they're out of line, we give them admonition. But we give encouragement to those that are small-souled and the development of the soul there. So then it says, support the weak and be patient toward all men. Those are admonitions to us. But the admonition, the word admonition there has to do, or warning, has to do with nothasia. So that's one area. The area of, as we would say, counseling or warning or confrontation. And that's where a fellow, perhaps you know, uh, uh, has, has, has really blown it in his life. You know, you met with him a month ago, and you went over some things concerning assurance of salvation, and the guy has been living, been living in doubts all month long, in spite of the fact that you gave him all kinds of assurance verses. All right? What do you do with such a person? Well, he knows better. And so therefore, you say, look, I, I'm going to have to be tough on you. Now, you last month said you believed what God said, and God said this, and yet you've been doubting him. I want to warn you that that can lead eventually to bitterness in your own heart, and you need to be aware of that, and so on. And boy, hit him, you know. He's out of line. So warn him. See, that's a part of the counseling relationship. But that's a part of the relationship with the one you're discipling. The second area has to do with encouragement. And here we have the word paraclesis, or the idea of calling to one side. It's the idea of the defense attorney, the often translated comforter. Uh, paracletes is the, the form that we see so often, for instance, where Christ spoke of the Holy Spirit as being the comforter. And so what we have here is the idea of giving comfort. The, the, the one who gives encouragement sometimes gives prodding along the way. It differs from Nathasia in that it is not a warning, but rather it's an urging. Romans 15, 4 and 5. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, may have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation, consolation, there it is, grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ. Consolation or comfort is paraclesis. Second Corinthians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's in verse 3, the Father of mercies and the God of all, paraclesis. God of all urging, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us. Now notice how many times this is used. Comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we may be able or have the power to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Pericles in every one of those places. Over and over and over again. We had it in verse 3 once. We have it in verse 4, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4 times. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, there it is again, also abound by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and, and salvation, which is effectual in the working of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, there it is again, it is for your comfort, again, and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so ye shall also be of the consolation or the comfort. 
God wants a great part of the development of the Christian life of another person to be in the area of comfort. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it tells us, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, build each other up, even as ye do. That has to do then with encouragement. Teaching? Didaskalos is the word for teacher. Didaskalia is the word for doctrine or the, the one who teaches systematically. And over and over again in Scripture, we see the importance of sound doctrine. That word sound is, uh, again, uh, the, the word that literally means health. It means healthy doctrine. And there's such a contrast made between false doctrine, that which is unhealthy and unwholesome, and that which is true doctrine. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as you have been taught. There's the word didaskalos that ye may be able by sound doctrine, again the word didaskalos, or from that root, both to exhort, that's the word parakletos, and to convince the gainsayers. Titus 2.7, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, didaskalos, showing uncorruptness, uncorruptness, no corruption of the doctrine, by life or by lip, Gravity, that is the seriousness, the soberness of this teaching. And sincerity, sincerity. You know, the word sincerity comes from the Latin word sincera. that used to be used, the word literally in the Latin means to be without wax. What would happen is that men would put their, they would put their vessels into the fire to fire them and if, the, if there was any sand left in the clay at the time that they had molded the vessel, then it would crack. And some unscrupulous merchants would take, the, would take the, some wax and color it the same color as the vessel and fill in the crack and then sell it on the market as a vessel that would be considered to be an honorable vessel. But when a man would come along who was an expert, he would say, this vessel is not sincere. It has wax. This vessel is, is with wax rather than being without wax. And they, so they came to the place where what they would do is they would, just like government inspected items today have a stamp on them saying uh, that this is grade A or grade B or whatever it is, they would have a stamp on that saying this is sincere. And that's basically the idea that we have in the, in the word sincere that is used here, only it's a different word. The Greek word doesn't carry fully that meaning, but it's the same basic idea. You are to be sincere without wax in your knowledge of the word of God and doctrine. It goes on and on and on, all kinds of words. Timothy was exhorted numerous times by Paul to be sure and teach true doctrine. We don't have time to look at the rest of the verses, but we've got them listed for you there. And then, fellowship. Fellowship. Now, the word fellowship with, which is used uh, several times in Scripture, is, is really soon koineo. Uh, koinos, or uh, koinos means common, share in common. Uh, koinonia is the sharing in common. And with the prefix soon, which means with, it means to have fellowship with, all right? 
And Philippians 1.5 is a verse that says this, Paul thanked these Philippian believers for their fellowship in the gospel, the fellowship with him in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. There is a fellowship that is developed as well, but there has to be this balance that you share in regard to the, the discipling of another person. All right, now, we also need to have before us goals. We have to really know what we're doing. Now, we're going to give you ten things that we want to discuss individually in regard to things that you can do, and these will be in keeping with these goals, uh, though there will be some of these things will be touched on, there'll be some subpoints and so on. But these are some of the basic goals that we have. And again, we're going to study those in detail, and as we come to those things, um, we will take time to look at a lot of Scripture and so on and give you a lot more help on these particular things. But let me just run, by, run these by you, just for the sake of having them in your mind and give you a couple of Scripture verses that relate to it. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe even further on the name of the Son of God. The whole of, of John, John's first epistle was written with this purpose in mind. Now, there are other subpoints. It was written that they might have fellowship. It was written that they might have joy. It was written that they, they might know that we have an advocate with the Father. Uh, all of those things are related. But at the end of the book, when he sums the whole thing up, he says, these things were written unto you that you might have assurance, so that you might know you already have Jesus Christ as your Savior. But we want you to know that you have eternal life. That's a very, very important aspect of discipling another person. Secondly, we have the goal of bringing them to a consistent walk with Jesus Christ. You remember in Ephesians, we have a number of passages where it says that we are to uh, walk in the Spirit. Uh, we, are, we are to uh, walk in love. We are to walk not as other Gentiles walk. We are to uh, walk circumspectly. Over in Galatians, it tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, that we are to walk in the Spirit. And you will never, never fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's a double negative there that you don't see in the English. But it's there in the Greek that when you walk in the Spirit, you'll never, never fulfill the lust of the flesh. flesh. Lust of the flesh, that of the Spirit, are two mutually exclusive things. We want to teach people how to have a consistent walk with Christ. How they can walk with Him day by day in closer and closer fellowship. We want to recreate, if you, if you please... The kind of walk that Adam and Eve had with, with God in the Garden of Eden. So that in the cool of the day, there'd be a meeting place where this person has the opportunity to, to, to really fellowship with his Creator. And uh, Jesus Christ has made that possible. And the Holy Spirit's power within us enables us to have that consistent walk with Christ. We've got to teach him what the steps are. Of course, when you're teaching a person how to walk, you've got to be as patient with him as you were with your children when they tried to learn. I remember my sister 
Ruth, first step she ever took. She was standing for several days before this. We had a long living room, and there was a bookcase. She was standing over there by the bookcase, and she took a book out of the bookcase. She walked all the way across the room and handed the book to my mother. We were amazed. I mean, good night. You know, she was ready for the Olympics. You know something? She didn't walk again for weeks after that. That was a one-shot flash-in-the-pan deal. You know, this person's going to have a great week, and you're going to say to yourself, oh, man, that's super. Got this guy really going. Man, this is a guy that's really going to be a ball of fire for God. You know, he witnessed to three people, read his Bible every day, and the whole scene, and you're going to think, man, that's a marathon. He's going to fall apart the next six weeks, and you're going to be awfully discouraged. Be patient. He's learning to walk. You know, somebody said that walking is a series of steps, a series of movements, each one of which is the beginning of a fall. You think of that for a minute. That's exactly what it is. Whenever you pick your foot up, as long as you're standing still, you're somewhat stable. The minute you start walking, you're off balance. Of course, you put your foot down, catch yourself. Now you're stable again. Then you pick the other foot up. You see? And learning to walk is tough business. And even those who do it very well, most of you do a pretty good job, you still once in a while fall flat on your face, right? So be patient with the guy. But teach him how to have a consistent walk with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, stability. That's our old friend Sterizo. You've heard a lot about that. First Peter chapter 5 gives to us that picture of Sterizo and in a very clear summary form, first of all, telling us that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's after us, be sure of that. And then it says in verse 9, whom he resists steadfast, there's our word, in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, but the God of all grace, who hath called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, uh, remind you of last Sunday's message, after ye have suffered a while, we don't like that little paragraph in there, after ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, that means to render fit, to put in right order and arrangement, cardartizo, establish, there's our word sterizo, which means to ground is on a foundation, strengthen, there's a word that simply means power, and then Settle you. There's a word that speaks of laying of a foundation. Hear it again? After you've suffered a while, they make you perfect, render you fit, establish, strengthen, settle you, to whom or to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We want to bring a person to a place of stability in their own spiritual life. And stability comes by feeding upon God's precious word. Then the fourth thing is Christ-likeness. Philippians 1, you remember, the Apostle Paul spoke of the fact that, that uh, he wanted them to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, in, for instance, in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, talking about himself now, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified, made great in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then relating that to them, he comes up to verse 27, Only let your conduct 
Not the word there for behavior, but rather polites, your citizenship, your politics. Let your politics, your, your part in the politic, your citizenship, your lifestyle, be as becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We want people to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. A good verse over in Galatians 4, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19 says this, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. Now listen, that is the picture of the discipler, if you ever found one. Paul says, I had birth pangs when you came to know Jesus Christ. It was just like a, like a woman in labor. And, and, and we, as we witnessed to you, and we felt those birth pangs, and oh my, how I wanted you to come to the Savior. You finally came. Guess what? Thought the birth pangs would go away. They're not going away. I continue to have birth pangs until Christ be formed in you. Until you're Christ-like. Now that's what a discipler should be. When you lead someone to Jesus Christ, you should not be satisfied. The pain shouldn't stop until you see Christ's likeness in that individual's life. And then, being independently dependent. Remember, we never want a person to be independently independent. That is, independent of the discipler and independent of Jesus Christ. We never want him to get to the place and say, well, I can make it on my own now. Don't need you. Don't need Christ. Don't need anybody. We never want him to come to that place. We never want him to be dependently independent. That is, we never want him to depend on the counselor and never learn to depend on Christ. We never want him to be dependently dependent, dependent on both the counselor and Christ. What we want him to be is independently dependent. That is, learn in his life and experience that he does not have to lean upon the person who's discipled him as a crutch. But he can be independent of that counselor. Stand on his own two feet, but only in the power of Jesus Christ. For Christ said, without me, ye can do a little bit. No, without me, you can do nothing. Independently dependent. And then finally, reproduction. 2 Timothy 2.2. That's simple, isn't it? 2 Timothy 2.2. Again, the things that thou hast heard from many witnesses, the same commit thou to what kind of men? Faithful men who shall be able to teach others, 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 to teach others. And it goes on and on and on. One more little thing. There are three levels of maturity. When I have time to talk about it, I'll just give them to you, all right? Three levels of maturity in the life of the believer. That is, in the growing Christian's life. We're not talking about carnality. We're not talking about backsliders. Those are other areas, all right? We're talking from 1 John chapter 2 where it talks about little children little growing ones young men and fathers the little children the new believer the person just out of the womb is occupied primarily with what Christ has done for us he'll revel in the forgiveness of his sins we could just take one second quickly just look at that. What it says is, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. 
That's what he's interested in. He wants to know he's forgiven. He wants to know he's on his way to heaven. And that's an area where you concentrate. The young man becomes occupied with what Christ will do through him. He's the one who, according to John, he says, I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. You've overcome the wicked one. You, you, you're involved in the battle. That's the thing that really is involved as far as the young men are concerned. Incidentally, it says in that same verse then again, little children, I write unto you, and that word little children is a different word. And it speaks in terms of general, the general sense, the child under discipline, speaking of all three of these. The goal of even the little children, the young men and the fathers, is to get them to the place where they are occupied with what Christ is to us. Just to know Him. Remember Paul in his older age said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. So twice he says here, I have written unto you fathers because you have known Him that is from the beginning. The relationship of simply being occupied with what Christ is to us. Our goal is to get the person to the place where the most important thing in the world is how God feels. That's the most important thing to them. That's the goal that we have. And that really is that which involves bringing them to maturity in Christ. And you have to have a process. We'll be talking about that process, not next week, missionary conference, but the following week. We'll get into it, and we'll give you the first of ten sessions, and hopefully we'll, we'll run just like we did tonight, covering a lot of ground, because we just want to give you the basics, give you the outline, and then you fly with it. And let's see some of you get involved now in bringing people to Christ and discipling them. It's going to be exciting to see our numbers double in days to come just because of your involvement in bringing others to maturity in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we've had to cover a lot of material in a very short time, but we are so thankful that you've given us the opportunity to do this. We're thankful that we're working here with a group of people with a measure of maturity, and therefore they're able to assimilate a lot of material, and we're thankful for that. We pray that you'll use now your word to strengthen each heart and to bring each one of us to the place of commitment in the area of discipling others. Help us to know exactly what to do and when to do it. With these that we will disciple, we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.